I invite you to turn in God's holy word to John chapter 2. I've chosen this as a passage in connection with our Lord's Supper celebration this morning, where Jesus provides the wine for the feast. John chapter 2, we'll read the first 12 verses there. John 2 at verse 1, it's our joy to read the inspired scriptures. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing on his word, shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, how rich is your word. We praise you for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would... Show us with spiritual wisdom and teach us the mysteries of the gospel. We pray, Lord, for every heart here today, that you'd be pleased to give that gift of faith and to strengthen it through your word. In Jesus' name, let your word be proclaimed in truth, we ask. Amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, I have often been cheered by the the text we're looking at this morning as I've stood to perform weddings. Because you know how it is. At weddings, there's, there's so much that's gone into it, so much preparation, there's so much expense laid out, and there's so much anticipation and so much joy. And it occurs to me sometimes as I stand up front to perform a wedding, and I look around and see all the extravagance or all the preparation or all the joy, and I think that I'm going to tell this couple that, that the other one is God's gift to them, and they, they ought to delight themselves in that person, and what a blessing of the Lord it is. I wonder on occasions, are we making too much of it? Are we a little too excited about this? Are we, are we going overboard? And then we begin a, a wedding, a marriage ceremony, and we read our liturgical form, the wedding form, and we we read in there how God created marriage, how he created the woman and brought her to the man, how, 
how God instituted this. And then in the form, it comes to this wonderful line. It says, our Lord Jesus honored marriage by his presence at the wedding in Cana. And it always makes me smile inside to think at that moment that that the thing we're doing at a wedding is the very thing that our Lord Jesus Christ did. He, a symbol to celebrate, to rejoice with the bride and groom and their families. And what we're doing is a good thing. It's what Jesus did. Now we can learn that from John chapter 2, can't we? And yet, that's not the main point of John chapter 2, is it? Because Jesus tells us more than that through his revelation here. This passage of John 2 teaches us not just that marriage is good, but that Jesus came to restore marriage. And not just that he came to restore marriage, but he came to fill marriage with joy. And not just that he came to fill marriage with joy, but he's come to fill our lives with joy. John tells us that this was the first of Christ's signs. Signs, not simply miracles, not simply wonders, but signs. A sign points to something. It it shows you a deeper spiritual reality for those who have the eyes to see. We are right to see something great going on here in that the very first sign Jesus gives us the sign of abundant wine. And wine in the Bible is related to God's favor and God's blessing and to divine joy. And the very first sign Christ gives at the opening of his public ministry is a sign of abundant joy. Christ has come to a broken, to a dry and a weary world where the music has stopped and the party has died and the joy is gone and he's come as the Messiah to bring us back into the favor of God, to renew our lives with the joy of the Lord. Well, Jesus meets that broken world here. That's the first thing I would draw your attention to this morning, the problem Jesus sees. He comes to a wedding, and isn't it interesting, the very first wedding he comes to as he begins his ministry is a wedding where something that ordinarily never happened happens. They run out of wine. Now, our text tells us in John 2, verse 1, it was on the third day there was a wedding in Cana. On the third day, John has been, has been numbering and noting the days. In fact, this is the end now of a week of activity, and the week's going to be crowned with abundant wine. But on the third day, it takes us back to what's just happened, that Jesus has begun to assemble a band of disciples. Jesus has even seen some of John the Baptist's disciples now begin to follow him. Jesus has called Nathanael, and he told him he saw him before he even came when he was beneath the fig tree. And Nathanael's amazed. You saw me? You weren't even there? And Jesus says, you think that's amazing? You're going to see greater things than that? And now the greater things begin. But for those disciples of John the Baptizer, this must have been a strange thing by itself to go to a wedding. John probably didn't go to weddings. Remember John, the baptizer, was the one who lived that austere and ascetic life out in the wilderness in rough clothing, eating locusts. He came neither eating nor drinking, Jesus said. He lived in the desert because John was called to get things ready for Christ's coming. He was the one crying out, make straight the way for the Lord. And the way John made the way for the Lord was by preaching repentance, 
but also even in his living to demonstrate that we have forfeited everything. By our sins, we have lost everything. But now the one who comes after John has appeared, greater than John. John's not worthy to untie his shoes. And he comes preaching and declaring that he's going to restore life. And after the preach of repentance, then comes a Savior who eats and drinks, even with tax collectors and sinners, who comes to bring the celebration of redemption, who comes to bring the joy of the wedding feast. And Jesus accepts the invitation to come to a wedding. Goes with his mom, with his family, takes his disciples along. But remarkably, they run out of wine. Mary's upset about it. We don't know what the connection is. John doesn't give us the details that we don't need. Obviously, it was somebody close to the family, right? Perhaps a good friend or relatives, their son getting married or whatever. And, and Mary learns that they've run out of wine, and she's, she's quite distressed about it. should know that in Jesus' day, it was the responsibility of the groom. The responsibility of the groom to financially bear the burden of the wedding feast, which could go on for a week. And he was expected to have provisions, refreshments for the whole group for the whole week. And running out of wine is not something real simple and no big deal. You know, we ran a little punch, we're going to switch to whatever. No, it was, it was much more significant. Running out of wine at a wedding was a horrific embarrassment and a great shame. Scholars suggest that there's evidence, in fact, that if the supplies at a feast ran out, the groom was open to a lawsuit. At the very least, it would have ruined a very important day in the life of two young people, would have brought shame upon their families. And here, we assume this rarely, if ever, happened. Here, at Jesus' first wedding, as he begins his ministry, they run out of wine. Now, wine in the Bible... It's a symbol of joy, life. The Jewish rabbis, according to the Talmud, said at some point that there is no rejoicing save with wine. Psalm 104 says that God gives his people wine that gladdens the heart of man. Now, it's not encouraging drunkenness. The Bible strictly forbids drunkenness. There's nothing in our text here this morning that, that can be used to justify drunkenness. In fact, the Bible makes clear that drunkards will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They won't go to heaven. But having said that, wine is found throughout the Old Testament as a symbol of life under the Lord. It took time to, to, to cultivate the grapes. It took a land of peace where you could engage and in caring for the grapes. It it was a sign of the Lord's mercy when you came to drink that wine. It was a a picture of life under God's blessing, of his joy. And in fact, in the Old Testament, the prophets prophesied of the coming of the Savior by saying that the, the mountains would drip with wine. Now in John 2, there's no wine. Mary tells Jesus, it seems that 
Joseph, her husband, has long since been called out of the world. He is no more on earth. That Mary has come to depend upon her firstborn son. You can imagine Jesus was a great son, right? And boys and girls are reminded that we ought to be the kind of children who, when mom has a need, we're quick to, to meet that need. Mary apparently is quite used to that, and she comes running to Jesus. What does she expect? Does she expect Jesus to hop on a donkey and run to the grocery store and get some more wine? Or is she contemplating, has she been contemplating what was said to her at the conception of Jesus, that this would be son of the Most High, son of David, the Messiah, and she knows he's begun his ministry now, and she's waiting for him to reveal himself, and she's saying, in effect, to Jesus, now's the moment, seize the moment, grab your destiny, make yourself known. Whatever the case, Jesus makes a startling response in verse 4. He says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, woman, that word, it wasn't the same as it sounds today, right? You say woman to somebody, it sounds pretty disrespectful in our culture. But it wasn't that in Christ's culture. More like ma'am or something more respectful. But it surely was not the word found on Mother's Day cards in first century Judah. Jesus is particularly avoiding the word mother. Jesus is purposefully setting a polite distance between himself and Mary. And he is saying in so many words, it's not your agenda. It's not your advice. It's not you are mom and I am your son and you ought to tell me what to do. I have entered the ministry. I'm responding to the call of my father. And I operate according to his schedule and his timetable. He pushes her back. My hour has not yet come. Jesus in the Gospel of John will be heard saying that repeatedly, or John will write that repeatedly. In John 7, Jesus' brothers want him to go openly make himself known, and Jesus says, my time has not yet come. The Jews tried to arrest him, but John says that they couldn't arrest him because his hour had not yet come. But then as we approach the the crucifixion week, then Jesus declares in John 12, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Father, the hour has come, he prays on the night of his arrest. So what's Jesus' time, or what's his hour? Well, it's the hour of his death. It's the hour when he will be glorified by being lifted up on a cross to draw all men to himself as he atones for their sins. That's the time. And you say, well, how is that a response to Mary? She just wants some wine. Well, Jesus apparently sees more in Mary's words than Mary sees. Mary says they have no wine. She's concerned about a social embarrassment. And Jesus is saying, I didn't come to save people simply from social embarrassment. Mary says they have no wine, and Jesus knows in his heart how true that is. That here are the people of God. And all the rituals of the Old Testament. And all the sacrifices. And all the purifications. And all the worship has not bridged the gap between a holy God and sinners. Jesus knows it's a broken world. It's a dry world. 
The music has stopped. The party has ended. Man has come under the wrath of God. And Jesus has come from heaven to bring about the true wedding banquet and to make the mountains drip with wine and to restore life and joy again. They've run out of wine, Jesus says to himself, I think, yes, more than you even know. Jesus sees a description of the world in those words. He's come to deal not just with our social etiquette, but with our relationship to God. He's come to deal with our sin, which has brought death into the world. And Jesus is looking at that. So he sees this deeper problem. But then notice, secondly, this morning, the joy that Jesus is glad to supply. That's secondly, this morning. Mary is rebuffed, but she doesn't give up. In fact, it seems that Mary takes the cue and recognizes in his words that though she cannot command him or maneuver him or press upon him her agenda, that there's something in his response that makes a promise. And she says to the servants, I think now in humble face, she says, whatever he says to you, you do that. And to our surprise, Jesus does something. There's six giant stone water pots there that were used for purifying. Remember, God had taught his people the difference between clean and unclean. If you touch a dead animal, you're unclean. If you do this, you're unclean. You need to wash. And the Jews had added more laws of purification so that before meals, they washed hands, they dipped plates in. They, it was all about clean and unclean. And those jars are there. Jesus tells them to fill them up. Fill those jars with water. All those washings had proven in so many ways useless. But now what the Old Testament had never been able to do, Christ is about to do. They fill up the water pots. He tells them to dip in and take it to the master of ceremonies. They bring it to him. And the master of ceremonies, he flips out in verse 10 says to the groom, calls the groom to him, and he says, what is this? Every man at the beginning of the feast, they set out the best wine. The people have drunk a lot and had their share. Then the inferior wine they bring out. But you've kept the good wine until now. You've kept the best for last. Who does that? And the answer is, God does that. God does that. When writer says, the astonishment of the master of the banquet at the best wine being saved till last is a commentary not on the days of this feast, but on the history of the world. God and his dealings with the human race and with his people has saved the best wine until now, the time when he sent his son and ushered in his kingdom. I like that. Who saves the best wine to last? God does. After all the Old Testament preparations, after training his people to know their impurity and to see their sin and to come to recognize that no matter how hard you work, no matter how many rules you try to obey, you can't bring joy into life. Then out comes the good wine in abundance. Listen to these words of Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. 
of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Those who wait on the Lord are not disappointed because he always brings out the best wine last. Jesus is in this sign proclaiming that he comes as the true groom to furnish the greatest banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb with the sweetest of wine, with the greatest of joy. Jesus Christ has turned ordinary water into glamorous wine. It means at least three things. Number one, it means that the life Jesus brings is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The old covenant now gives way to the new. The new wine has come. You can't put it in the old wineskins. Jesus, the Messiah, has arrived. It means, number two, that Jesus brings abundant life. You take note of the quantity of wine. Jesus didn't, you know, furnish a a gallon or two, but upwards of 150 gallons. It's wine in abundance. The mountains are dripping. And Christ is announcing that in his kingdom there's, there's no miser there's no meager amount. This is, this is the kingdom of abundant life, everlasting life, the feast that will never end and never run dry. And thirdly, Christ is proclaiming that his kingdom is astonishingly satisfying. When the master of ceremonies is delighted with the delicious wine, Christ is making clear that his is a kingdom not of some cheap wine, But his is a kingdom of glorious pleasures and delights. He's proclaiming that fellowship with God, which he has come to restore, is more satisfying than anything in the world. It's more satisfying than riches and possessions. It's more satisfying than getting drunk or sexual immorality. It's more satisfying than personal accomplishments at work. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus is life with God. And it gladdens the heart and fills us with delight. It is the marriage supper to come. You've saved the best for last. We look forward to that, don't we? That great day to come. That great feast that God has in store for us. It gives us great excitement to think of a a place card at the table with our name on it. That we, by the grace of God, have a place But already now, the joy has broken in. If Christ has come, then the music has started. If Christ has come, the celebration has begun. If Christ has come, the feasting is here. And we eat and drink this morning, not as one more ceremony to check off that might bring us a little closer to God, not as one more thing to do that might possibly cover another one of our sins, but we eat and drink as those who celebrate the accomplishment that Jesus died once for all, and in doing that, the temple curtain has been torn, and the way into the wedding hall has been opened to us. We have forgiveness of all our sins, 
we have the life-giving Spirit of God in our hearts. Gladness has entered. It has entered into our lives. It has entered into our worship service. It has entered into our homes. It's entered into our marriages. It's entered into the task of mothering. The hard task. God said there's going to be pains involved. Thorns in the ground. And producing. But pains for the woman in bearing. And yet Christ says... In the midst of the sorrows, here is the compensating joy. It's fellowship with God. It's grace to press on in hard times. Motherhood is infused with the mercies of God. To serve now, not simply children, but to serve the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings in communion with him. You see, brothers and sisters, the joy has begun. Has it entered into your life? Does it fill you? Have you begun to taste of the riches and the mercies of the Lord, his love for you in Christ? Have you begun to taste more and more how the pleasures of God, knowing him, is sweeter than anything else in the world? Because that's Jesus. That's what Jesus seeks from us. Notice that. Finally, this morning, the trust that Jesus seeks. John ends this at verse 11 by saying, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, other gospel writers, they give a whole bunch of miracles. John just gives us seven signs and expands on them and shows the significance of each one. And so we are right to make much of this wine. But John tells us plainly that Christ in doing this was manifesting his glory. He was giving a sign to show his glory. And you see, beholding the glory of Jesus is the key to living. John 1 verse 14 said, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten come from the Father. And then John's going to say, as he comes towards the close of his gospel, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not recorded in this book. But these, he says, are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. By believing, you may have life. By believing, you may have the joy. By believing, you may drink the wine and rejoice. There's only one way for your life to be renewed. There's only one way to inherit the everlasting banquet above. There's only one way that Motherhood as a drudgery or motherhood as a penance and works righteousness or motherhood as my personal ambition and I want to please myself. There's only one way you can rise higher than that. It's by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by seeing the glory of the Savior. Those who do not see the glory of Jesus Christ are stuck in a broke down party for some years on earth, and then an eternally broken party. 
thereafter. It doesn't matter, you know, what other religion you would take up. It doesn't matter how hard you would try. It doesn't matter how many momentary pleasures you experience in this life. If you've not seen the glory of the Lord Jesus, you have no life. If you haven't seen the wonder that this, the Son of God, has come down to die for sinners and to bring them back beneath the blessing of God to know God's love, then there is no life. But Christ has come to give life, and for that purpose he has come to reveal himself. And he has revealed himself to his disciples so that they might proclaim it to others. You know, it's strange, isn't it, people of God, how the world portrays Christianity. They make Christianity out to be the religion where there is no life, there's no joy, there's no happiness. They're all killjoys. But the Bible says just the opposite. You live in rebellion against the Lord, it always leads to death. You might have momentary happiness, you might have momentary pleasure, but it is all empty. It's death. It's a horrifying thing, isn't it, to see a culture this past week who is enraged that they can't have the right, perhaps, to kill their own offspring. It is a culture that loves death. But Christianity is the religion of life renewal and everlasting delights, pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. And with this first miracle, Jesus announces it. And he, by his spirit, gives us the faith to see his glory. I didn't choose this text this morning because of Mother's Day. I chose it because of the Lord's Supper, but... It does strike me that of all things, or among all things God has given us, one of the things we ought to be so very grateful for is for mothers who have seen the glory of the Lord and who in shepherding their children can say, you know, there's something greater than the thing that makes you cry. There's something worse than the thing that makes you cry your sin, but there's something greater, the Lord Jesus. Mothers apart from Christ are concerned only on the here and now, protecting their children so they don't skin their knee, protecting their children so they're not bullied at school, protecting their children so they have good financial success. But mothers who have seen the glory of the Lord know that even if their child was called to die a martyr's death, there's something far greater than this earthly life. The loving kindness of the Lord is better than life. What a gift to have Christian mothers who have seen the glory of Jesus, who remind themselves daily, keep my eyes on the one who matters. So that they're able to say to their children every day, that's not the important thing. Christ is. Christ is. Isn't it amazing, dear people of God, that the very first sign as Christ opens his ministry is to make the mountains drip with wine and to say, come know the pleasure of God. Come know the favor of God. Come live beneath the blessing of God, and your heart will forever be satisfied.
Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, we lift up our hearts to you, acknowledging that we have been lied to by the world, by Satan, and by our own hearts, and pleading that we by faith would behold the glory of the Lord Jesus and the riches and favor and blessing of his kingdom. Oh, Father, let us taste, let us see, let us believe, work in us a deep repentance of our sin, a true understanding of how we had forfeited everything, and give to us a firm faith in Christ, that he has bridged the gap and carried away our sorrows to fill our lives with your joyful presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This time we move to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I invite you to take out the forms and prayers book, the small book in the chair in front of you. We're turning to page 53 this morning, page 53. Form, short form number two, we read there, Brothers and sisters, you who desire to come to the Holy Communion of the body and blood of our Savior must consider how the Apostle Paul exhorts us diligently to examine ourselves before we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For as the benefit of this sacred meal is great, if we receive the sacrament with a penitent heart and with lively faith, so is the danger great if we receive it in an unworthy manner. For then we are guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. We eat and drink to our own judgment, and we kindle God's wrath against us. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged by the Lord. Therefore, truly repent of your sins, place a lively and steadfast faith in Christ our Savior, and live in love with all people so that you will be worthy partakers of this holy sacrament. Above all things, you must give most humble and sincere thanks to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the redemption of the world by the passion and death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Give thanks that he who is God became man. Give thanks that the Son humbled himself to death upon the cross for us miserable sinners. Give thanks that we who walk in this dark world and in the shadow of death have been made the children of God and exalted to everlasting life. Because of this, we should always remember the exceedingly great love of our only Savior, Jesus Christ, and the innumerable benefits that he has obtained for us by his precious blood. This is why he instituted and ordained holy sacraments as pledges of his love and for a continual remembrance of his death to our great and endless comfort. To him, therefore, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, let us give continual thanks, submitting ourselves completely to his holy will and pleasure, and seeking to serve him in true holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. To all of you who truly and earnestly repent of your sins, who embrace Jesus by faith as your Savior, and who desire more and more to lead a new life, following the commandments of God, draw near and take this holy sacrament to your comfort. Hear what comforting words our Savior, Jesus Christ, speaks to all that truly turn to him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Congregation, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's bow together in prayer before our God. Our Father in heaven, we do not presume to come to this table trusting in our own righteousness. But, O merciful God, we come according to your great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under the table of your Son. But you are our merciful and gracious Father. Would you grant us, therefore, that we may be fed on the crucified Lord Jesus by faith, and that he may be united to us and we to him, who with you and the Holy Spirit is worthy of eternal thanks and praise. Amen. Let's stand together to recite our Christian faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. If you care to follow on the page, it's page 47 on the right-hand column, page 47. And as we come near to the table, we come as one body confessing the same thing. Let us say together, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated and the elders may come forward. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Congregation of Christ, the bread which we break is a communion of the body of Christ.
Congregation of Christ, may the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, preserve your body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you, and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. The cup of blessing which we bless is a communion of the blood of Christ. Congregation of Christ, may the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve your body and soul unto everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you, and be thankful.
Let us bow and give thanks. Almighty and ever-living God, we most heartily thank you. You have fed us, who have rightly received this holy sacrament with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. You assure us by this bread and wine of your favor and goodness toward us, that we are members of the body of your Son, which is the blessed company of all faithful people. You've made us heirs of your everlasting kingdom by the merits of the most precious passion and death of your dear Son. And we most humbly thank you, O Heavenly Father, praying that you would assist us with your grace, that we may continue in that holy fellowship and do all such good works as you have prepared for us to walk in through Jesus Christ our Savior, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be all honor and glory, world without end. Amen. Let's turn.